This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCrae. What can we expect from grocery stores and restaurants of the future? What is coming, and in some cases, what is already here, may just surprise you. Learn how agriculture and food is changing, and how farmers and the ag industry can prepare for those opportunities and challenges. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've been using Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons and will again this year. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now that same predictability is available right in the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. To learn more, just contact your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. Rob Dungowski is the leader of the Food and Agriculture Division with Ernst & Young. As you'll hear in a moment, he's constantly evaluating trends and technology in the farming and food sectors and then consulting, often with agribusiness companies, on how those changes will impact the industry of agriculture. Of course, those trends also affect those of us on the farm and related businesses. Some of this work is really eye-opening as it provides insights on many consumer trends, I think you'll probably be surprised by some of what Rob shares about what he sees taking place in the next five to ten years. Rob, you're always looking at ag trends, global trends, at least with, with what you do. So give me a, a big overview of the picture right now. I'd like to look back five years to what you thought was going to happen. Has that mostly come true, or what has surprised you that we have or haven't done in the last five years? Well, I think right now you know, the, the biggest um, topic is, is uh, inflation. It's, it's food cost. You know, and so if we're consumers are worried about food costs, and at the same time we're trying to push a sustainability agenda, can we do both? You know, I think that's a big trend. I think the other in the upstream agriculture world is we've got labor issues. You know, and can we figure out those labor issues through incenting people to come to work and, and give them a great place to work, or do we need to really double down on robotics and automation? So I think in five years, you know, we'll, we'll see where those two things end up. Inflation is definitely a, uh, you know, a cycle and a trend that we go through, but I think the uh, trend towards robotics and automation is, is something we'll see, you know, pretty material differences. I'm curious, how much are those trends affecting U.S. agriculture compared to global? We tend to see just U.S. because that's what we experience. Are we experiencing much less than what we're seeing in other places, or how does it look as we look at the global picture? Yeah, of course it depends, right? And if you're talking about uh, livestock, you're talking about you know broadacre crops or fertilizer or specialty crops, you're going to see wide variations. And, and market structures are different across the world. But you, you are seeing you know some consistency, particularly around food prices. You know, So that's one that was definitely consistent across the world. Uh, the desire for shorter supply chains is probably more acute here in the U.S. because we've had shorter supply chains in different parts of the world, particularly for specialty crops. And then I think we look at geopolitics, that's when you really start to get into commodity trades and, you know, the, you know, kind of bulk trading activities. And what's that going to look like? Um, we did a study we called, you know, the world in five years uh, from a geopolitical standpoint. And depending upon the, ge- you know, the political scenario you think is going to play out, it could be, you know, significant impact on, uh, on agriculture trade. 
I wanted to get into that topic just a bit because there are many different scenarios. One of which, though, is a result of this is we begin to just trade in blocks, and that might be the most, do we say, destructive or most uh, turmoil in a system like that. Would that be right? Yeah, I think that's probably the 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 biggest difference we could see. You know, I mean, I think we've already seen you know less globalization than what we had five years ago, um, and we don't think we're going back in that direction. So it's just how far you know do we go in, in the other way? I think, but I, I do think like two trading blocks could be the most extreme example. So we'd be looking at a system where you know if you're on Ukraine side or Russia side, that's all you trade with. Is that what we could? perhaps head to it, again that would be the the extreme scenario yeah then you've got some you got some fence sitters to figure out you know which way are certain countries going to go and which block would they go into and that that could you know overweight the uh, the system quite a bit the session we just sat through one of the topics that we wound up with was talking about populations i'm interested to think about world populations especially asia we think of japan and china especially china big population but now both of those are I guess the populations are beginning to wane. The numbers are going down. How's that affect us going forward? Well, definitely you're looking at a demand, you know, demand hit, right? And so there's, you know, definitely from a pure economic standpoint, the, the volumes will, will, will be impacted. Now, you know, I, I haven't, you know, dug in and seen is, that a, is it a blip or is it a trend? You know, and I think that's something we've got to think about. I mean, we've always had concerns in Japan about population growth and, you know, average age and replenishment rates and things like that. Absolutely. Um, but, I, you know, we, we may be seeing, you know, we may need to just, just determine is this a blip or a trend. Conversely, what areas of the world do we see rising populations? How do we gear up for what those parts of the world may need? Well, I'm assuming that China is going to kind of rebound and probably going to continue to grow. I mean, I think India is the other one. You know, I mean, India is is really showing themselves as a, you know, a real power. You know, and what what could they look like from a consumer standpoint in the future? Again, it's very different market to the way we operate here in the United States. Um, some of the things they experience on a day-to-day basis of are things that we haven't experienced in a long time, like lack of cold storage and availability and, you know, consistent items on shelf. You know, we we haven't experienced that in the U.S. You know, I think in other parts of the world that's been been the norm. Let's talk for a moment about consumer trends. Is it what most of us believe that we see, okay, people are wanting certain things, they're looking at more labels, those types of things, or are you going to point out some things that perhaps we're not thinking of that are the trends of the future dealing with consumers? Well, I I think it's definitely, you know, broadly the consumer's interest in food is, is increased. You know, from pre, pre-pandemic, absolutely, you know, we found more time at home, we're cooking more at home, and we figured out there's certain elements that, that you know, we liked. And so I think, uh, and we started to learn more what's in food. And so I think there's a, there's a piece of that. Now, there's some people that just couldn't wait get, to get back to, you know, eating out and, and you know, meal kits and, and all, all the rest. I think the one thing that I think is really interesting in the, in the current environment is the different attitudes toward foods between generations. You know, the boomers and extras, we, we saw status as cars and, and houses. Food was a bit of a necessity, you know, and let's get it as, I want it convenient, I want it fast, I don't want to spend too much time there, you know, and, and I don't want to spend the bulk of my dollars there, I, you know, because it doesn't show for me, it shows more in a house than a car. <laughs> and you contrast that with our millennials and Gen Zs, they have a little bit different attitude. I mean, they're going to tell you that, you know, they shop at, at you know, at the premium um, grocers they uh they've you know got into restaurants that take two months to get into and they're proud of that that's status for them but they may not even tell you what kind of car in fact many of them may not even have a car you know and so it's just a different attitude towards food right now i'll use the term that you used is that a blip or a trend do you think going forward certainly there's a segment of the population but is it a large enough segment that it will really drive changes in agriculture and food do we think 
Yeah, in this case, I absolutely think it's a trend. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're, you're seeing the behaviors already playing themselves out. The the volumes we're talking about in those age categories are, are real. I mean, it's the majority right now. So, so I absolutely think that's more of a trend. What do you think that means then for a farmer? Does it change what we grow, how we grow things, do you think, going forward in the future? Well, I think right now farmers have really got to think about the entire value chain. You know, the, the end of their market is not the elevator. The end of their markets past the elevator into food manufacturers, into distri- distributors, down to QSRs and, and uh, grocery. And so I think we really need to understand what are the trends that are happening there. You know, if a, if a grocer or a restaurant says, I'm going to grow all my food, you know, I'm going to source all my food within a day's drive of every store, you know, that, that may be an opportunity. And are you positioned, are you agile enough to take advantage of that opportunity? Particularly if you're growing corn and soy your whole life and all of a sudden the grocer says, you know, I could, I could use 50 acres of lettuce, you know, are you in a position to actually pivot and, and take advantage of those high-value crops? How quick do you think some of that may happen? Or perhaps you're going to tell me, well, it's already happening and you just haven't seen it where you live. <laughs> There's a few novelty stores that are making some of those claims, but nothing to scale. I do think in the next, I don't know, let's call it one to three years, we're going to see some major restaurant change, major grocers, you know, make those claims that, you know, things are sourced within a, a day's drive, you know, and, and they're going to give you visibility into into their sourcing policies and sourcing practices. So I think visibility, transparency is going to continue to increase. How does, how does that change the grocery store of the future then? We discussed that a, a little bit in the session. Yeah, I think the things that consumers continue to want to pick out themselves are things at the perimeter of the store. You know, I want to want to put my thumb on that avocado and see if it's if it's ripe, if it's ready. I don't, you know, I don't I don't really tolerate you know delivery of uh, of rotten fruit. You know, and so I want to I want to take claim and accountability for picking that out. But you know, if I'm picking out cereal, you know, and something's in a bag, box, or a can, I may not be as selective, and that's really ripe for online delivery or click and collect kind of kind of practices so you know really see a movement from stuff that's in the center of the store out into a a dark store environment and the perimeter store becomes more pronounced and then the question quickly gets into a real estate decision what do you do with the what do you do with the real estate are there other things that consumers are going to come into the store for you know you start to see some fusing between restaurants and and grocery a little bit more than we've seen so um, i think it'll be an interesting evolution to watch the store formats how far are we away from grocery stores that are, in a sense, growing the food, perhaps, within the store? Uh, and that's already happening in some cases. In some cases, we're seeing that. You know, we're seeing some pilots going on, but nothing that I would say at scale. Um, you know, we've got some examples of where, you know, there's some greenhouses on the roofs of, of certain grocery stores. And so, you know, grow the leafy greens upstairs and sell them downstairs, right? We're seeing examples of that. We're seeing uh, some indoor farming, you know, pilots in some of the major grocers, you know. I, I think the opportunity is to bring farmers markets inside the store, so store in, inside a store concept. I do think we're going to see certain veggies grown inside the store where the consumer, you know, now becomes the harvester. You know, they'll be the first person to ever touch some of those plants. And that, you know, that's, that's kind of exciting in a lot of ways. I think, there were, you know, we've got infrastructure. We've got lots of questions of how it's going to work. We've got food safety guidelines, inspection routines. There's, it's not an easy, you know, just turn on the switch. But I, I do think that's a, a definite trend to watch. Do you think that those trends are mostly consumer-driven? Is it the, the corporate world that is going to drive that, or how does it happen? And does it drive all the way through the economy, then that eventually that's just what we see, and it doesn't matter <laughs> what we're used to in the past? Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the visible hand of the economy will be driven by the consumer. You know, I do think it will be largely consumer-driven. 
but you got to figure out which consumer you want to serve. So if your desire is to serve low-cost, high-volume foods, you may not you know, get into some of these practices. If, you're, if your consumer profile is a, let's like we were talking earlier, if it's one of the millennial Gen Zs who, you know, maybe is an urban professional and they're looking for fresh, they all about their experience, then you're going to cater to that market and you're probably more prone to invest in certain technologies like we discussed. If I'm a farmer listening to this, should I be worried? Let's say I'm growing corn and soybeans and say, I don't think I can make all these changes or should I be excited because there are going to be new opportunities for me? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> so like, uh, like any disruptive market force, you've got to look at it as a, is it a threat? Is it, a, is it an opportunity? And some folks are going to look at it and say, you know what, I don't want to change. I'm going to run this thing out. And they may say, you know, at the end of this, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a child that I'm going to transfer the farm to. This looks like my exit strategy. For others are saying, this is my opportunity to pivot into a more diverse uh, you know, growing environment, you know, frankly, a more diverse profit stream. You know, so they, I think some will see it as an opportunity. If I am looking at it as an opportunity, which hopefully all of us are always, while change is difficult, looking at opportunities, what would be things that I should think of as a farmer then to better be able to take advantage of that opportunity now so it doesn't hit me and drive me out of business, but conversely helps me grow business? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is, is really to make sure you've got a good bead on your end markets. You know, I mean, when you're when you're growing commodities, the end market's really easy. You know, it's an elevator. Now, you know, there's marketing schemes and there's lots of decisions. So I don't I don't discount that at all. But to understand the end markets, say, hey, you know, how how much artichokes is going to be needed in my region? How much how much you know supply do I really need to produce? I think knowing the end markets one, two, what's the magnitude of change? You know, on farm, how much capital am I going to need? You know, to really make a change like this. Where am I going to get the capital becomes the next question. And then ultimately, in some of these environments, particularly row crops that are mostly automated with auto steer and everything else, I mean, think about labor per acre. You start to shift this around, now labor per acre becomes a big issue. And do I have access to labor? So if I know the end markets, I know what capital is needed, I have access to capital, I don't have anybody to do anything, you're kind of dead in the water. So I think labor becomes a big, a big you know, component. We've mostly focused right now on plants, row crops, so forth. What happens on the livestock side? We hear about plant-based proteins, about lab-grown meat. What do we see on the livestock sector? Yeah, I mean, definitely growth. You know, if you look at most, most of the diets that are, that are out there that people are recommending and trying to follow, they're typically high-protein, low-carb. You know, they all come in different names, but you know, they're, they're definitely a you know, high-protein, low-carb environment. I think the plant-based protein is, is we're seeing moderation in the growth rates. I don't expect that to uptick nearly as quickly as it did a couple of years ago. Lab-grown's new. We don't know where lab-grown's going to go. And in some ways, if you're a livestock uh, producer, you could say that's a, that's a pretty big threat, and it could be. I think that's something that you've you got to keep, uh, keep in mind. I think the big thing, the difference is plant-based proteins were based off the investment thesis that it's better for you, therefore you should pay more. Lab-grown protein is based on the investment thesis. It's exactly like the traditional counterpart. Therefore, there shouldn't be any uh, price premium in the market. So they have to get that down to cost parity or less in order to even interest the consumer. And still some consumers are going to look at it and say, no way, not, not in my house. <laughs> you know, so, so I think it's going to be, you know, it would be interesting to watch consumer sentiment you know, play out on that, that technology. Well, with the lab-grown meat, it might replace certain segments other, rather than others. So, in other words, the steakhouse experience may never be lab-grown meat, or never's a long time, I guess. But it may transform other segments of the protein market more quickly. Would that be right? It, it could, you know, transform certain segments in the U.S. It, it could have a different impact than other parts of the world where maybe they don't have access to beef. 
or they don't have access to poultry or what have you. So I, I think you can see you know, major differences in different regions of the world. And so I just, I, it just depends on what, kind of what the consumers are wanting and, and what the opportunities are. You mentioned fermented protein, and that's a new term to a lot of us. What does that mean? Because I believe you see perhaps the most growth opportunity with these fermented proteins. Well, it's, it's certainly, we're early on the S-curve on the fer- fermentation side. I mean, the three basic alt proteins that we watch are plant-based, lab-grown, and fermented. And, you know, fermented is one of those, it's a practice that's been around forever. Lab-grown proteins were, you know, you have protein scaffolding and bioreactors is a new is a new technology, new practice. Fermentation capitalizes on something that, that's been around for a long time. Uh, and it could be a, a, a really interesting unlock where you're putting proteins where they don't naturally exist. And so it you know, won't be a standalone a meal by itself, but it, it could be a key ingredient to you know, some foods that don't naturally contain proteins. So you're more infusing the proteins into other products? Is that what it would look like? That's the general, general concept and thought, yeah. yeah. It's not, uh, it's not we're going to create a fermented protein burger <laughs> necessarily, but you might have more protein in drinks that you know, don't naturally have them or, or other foods like that. Let's jump over to fuel for a moment because certainly that's on a lot of people's minds. We've grown a lot of corn for ethanol, uh, but we hear a lot about electric uh, cars. There are a lot of different opinions on how fast some of that technology will be adopted. So what do you see coming up over the next five years? I'm not a I'm not an automotive guy for sure, you know, and so I'm I'm a user of that. Um, so I couldn't tell you the, the the automobile outlook, but I you know when I watch the trends talking about adoption rates by 2030 for electric vehicles. I, I can't help to think that it's going to impact uh, total demand for, uh, for gasoline and, and, in effect, ethanol as well. But at the same time, I see you know, rising demand for some of the biofuels, renewable diesel, renewable oils, renewable fats, things like that. that you say this could be a different ballgame on a you know, different market structure around some of those things. So it could be demand down on one side and demand up on another. But definitely, I think there will be some impact. What controls the pace that the EV market continues to expand then? Is it customer interest or is it more infrastructure that we're looking at i think customers are, are are intrigued and they're going down the path already on on evs and again not being an automotive expert this is my speculation but i i don't think you really reach a a, a real steep part of the s curve and really grow that market until you've got the infrastructure in place and when that infrastructure is equivalent to combustible engines, you know, or it's more difficult to find gas than it is electric, now all of a sudden I think you've got a, a disruptive force in the market. The fiber side uh, is something else that you talked about. Uh, what are we seeing in fiber as far as how it changes in the future years? Yeah, and again, I think it goes back to consumer trends. Consumers in certain categories, you know, again, I think the younger generations are probably more more akin to this. Is they're looking to not only have clothing that's that's natural and and uh, and so forth, but they're also looking to know the who who produced them, where it come from, what were the practices. It sounds a lot like food, you know, to some degree. Uh, I don't think it's got near the energy level behind it uh, as food does. But I do think we're going to see some more trends to, to more organic, natural, you know, sustainably grown cotton and other other uh, other fibers. What about the hemp side of the fiber? Because uh, maybe we got too ambitious with the hemp here, and we said it's going to be used in everything, and we we grew more than we could uh, actually use. Yeah, I think the a lot of people jumped on the hemp you know, right after the farm bill uh, allowed that at the national or federal level. 
I think a lot of people think of CBD, they're thinking about you know, industrial fiber uses and so forth. I, I think it's still a, I mean, hemp's not a new product, right? I mean, it's not a new plant. It's been around for a long time, you know, rope and everything else. Uh, I, I think we are seeing that the potential for that is, is going to be there. Do I think it's going to disrupt the cotton market and turn it upside down? No. You know, I think we're going to see a coexistence. But I do think they're, we're going to continue to innovate around hemp in a, uh, a bigger way than what we've seen. You're out there consulting with different companies. Usually it's agribusiness companies. Just in general, are those companies, what's on their mind uh, that perhaps we don't think about that would be on their mind? <laughs> well, I would say today the, you know, the big things on most people's minds, whether you're in you know, upstream ag or downstream food, is the economy. Not just the U.S. economy, the global economy, geopolitics, you know, and when you see the markets going well and you're still wondering what's going to happen geopolitically, I think that is definitely a, uh, a top, of, uh, top of mind board level issue. The second is around labor and talent, and I would put in two categories, you know, labor being, can I just get enough people to do the work that I need them to? And second is there is an absolute war for talent. We've heard that for years. Most of my clients are talking about, you know, they're talent strong in their areas and they're they've got some gaps in other areas so i think labor and talent becomes the other the other one and the last one i say that people are continuing to figure out where does technology fit and so i don't think it's just a pure keep the lights on kind of environment but where does technology actually differentiate me in the marketplace there's been a lot of money poured into technology and i think people are taking it now of how do i actually make that a, a market opportunity as we think about consumers, what are the trends we need to think about for the next five years with, with them? Or do you just see more of the same of the trends that we have been on? I think we need to keep, you know, probably micro-segmentation is one thing. You know, so, you know, we got to continue to be careful we don't segment the markets at too high of a level. And then I think the second part of that is to really watch what are those trends. What are things that are you can capture on a short-term, two-, three-year basis versus really changing the, the way people in their attitudes towards, uh, towards food or, or any, any consumer product. I think the other, the other aspect is with AI and the way AI works and the way we're exchanging data is, is the difference between the way consumers shop and the way they buy. And I think that becomes a really big differentiation in the way you take your product to market in the future. Because the way they shop could be you know, largely AI-driven and the way they buy could be, uh, could be different. So I think there's a big differentiation between the two. I know that you get a chance to visit with farmers at, at seminars and so forth, but you aren't necessarily consulting with them. But what's the feedback you get from farmers after these presentations? Is it one of curiosity and hope, or is it one of <laughs> fear and dread? <laughs> yeah, of course, it depends on who they are, right? But some, some are like, I think, you're, I, I think you're way too far out. I don't think we'll ever see it, in almost in, in an unbelievable sense. And then there's others like, man, we're seeing exactly what, you, what you're, you're talking about. We're seeing the way people want to come to our farms. They want to know more about our food. We see the opportunity to go direct to consumer or farmer to consumer, you know. And so, you know, when that happens, when you, you know, I just talked to a gentleman earlier today. He said five years ago we didn't sell anything direct off our farm. Now we're in seven local grocery stores. When you see that kind of trend, if you're one of the people that's in the middle, you start to ask the question, what's my role going to be if this, if this you know, trend becomes reality and we get scale? So you localize a lot of the supply chains, and it really takes the, makes a material impact in the distribution. I think if you're in the middle, you go, I, I hope I still got a good spot to play. <laughs> well, how do we make sure that we do have a good spot to play, do you think? Again, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I guess, a little old-fashioned. I still think it's know your customer, and then, but I think today it's know your customer's customer, and I know your supplier's supplier. I think that's probably the difference. It used to always just be know your customer, but now... I think you got to know who's supplying you because what they supply to you could be something important as you as you moved into your customer and your customer customer environment. 
To wind up, I know you have mentioned some resources that people may be interested on the web, just looking at some of these future trends and being aware of them. So how do I see some of those? Yeah, we, you know, off, off our website, there's a lot of interesting information. You can um, Our Food System Reimagined platform is one that's got a lot of information around the future. You know, that's a... That's a platform we developed to really think about the food system over the next decade. So you'll see things in there about alternative proteins, geopolitical um, outlooks, and and some uh, kind of even near-term statistics and, and forecasts. So that's for the food system. We've got a lot of material out there around the world in five years is what we call it, which is really laying out those geopolitical scenarios. And then I think some work that we do on, uh, on a very routine basis is what we call our future consumer index which really measures you know, consumer sentiment consistently over, uh, over a time periods. And really watching that sentiment, I think, is going to be important for anyone in the food system. What's my easiest way to find that on the web, then? Easiest go to ey.com and, and just do a search. Absolutely. Any of those terms, food system reimagined, world in five years, future consumer index, all those will, you know, will, will pop up real quick for you. Rob, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Always appreciate it. If you didn't catch that website, it's just ey.com for Ernst & Young. So go to ey.com and you can use the search function to find some of that info on their site that he discussed. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. And you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well. At farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or your favorite podcast platform. If you miss one of our shows, it's easy to go back and find those on the website or on that podcast platform. We have a variety of guests on our shows, and often that information is a bit timeless, so it's great to go back and search some of the topics you may find helpful. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.